Action Network Podcast. 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 If you are even remotely a savage, you'll run these people over in a second. Oh! Welcome to the Action Network podcast. We are presented by the FanDuel Sportsbook. I'm your host today, Brendan Glasheen, joined by Sean Zarillo and Billy Ward. That means we have a UFC betting preview. We're breaking down UFC Vegas 78 this weekend from the Apex Center in Las Vegas. 13 fights on the card. We're looking at underdogs, props, and more. And we'll also get to best bets before the show concludes. We start with the main event. Oh, by the way, broadcast uh, for this is ESPN. ESPN Family and Network starting at 4 Eastern on Saturday. The main event featured welterweight matchup between Rafael Dos Anjos. He is the favorite taking on Vicente Luque. It's almost a pick em. I mean, it's getting close to that point. Sean Zarillo, when you assess this one, uh, just what do you make of the fight, the matchup? And based on those edges, how would you like to bet it? Yeah, I like RDA here quite a bit, actually. Made him closer to 60% in this matchup. So I bet him up to about minus 140. The arguments on the Luque size, I think, or the Luque side, I think come down to size. He's taller. He's three inches taller. He has a six-inch reach advantage. He's the better striker. He's also seven years younger. We'll get to why I don't think that matters quite as much in a bit. But in terms of the RDA side, all of the things that I want to see over the course of a 25-minute fight, grappling upside, cardio upside, 25-minute experience. I believe he's 6-4 and four in fights that have gone at least 25 or gone at least to the fifth round. Vicente Luque, 0-2 or 0-3 in his career in fights that have been scheduled for five rounds. Don't think he's ever gone the full 25 minutes either. So strength, the schedule advantage for RDA, 25-minute fight advantage for RDA, all of that five-round experience on his schedule. And I think any sort of longer extended fight certainly favors him down the stretch in terms of having that grappling upside. One big weakness that we see consistently in Vicente Luque's game is his takedown defense, 61% for his career. As I said, he's a little bit bigger of a fighter in this matchup, but he seems to get taken down by everybody. He does have a good submission game from his back. He is pretty good at getting back up from his feet, but I think there's going to be long stretches in this fight where RDA is controlling him up against the fence or controlling him on the mat and probably not getting submitted from top because... His jujitsu is so good. So Luke, probably the more dangerous fighter, especially over the first 15, 10 or 15 minutes of the fight. Just think he hits harder. He's longer, has the striking advantage. But over a 25-minute fight, I think that wrestling for RDA is really going to prove the difference. He's going to be able to land takedowns. And the last thing I want to mention, why the age doesn't concern me. Of the two, Luke seems to be in worse physical shape, had a brain bleed prior to his last fight against Jeff Neal, was subsequently knocked out. But he had to be cleared by doctors, especially before that fight, just to get in the octagon. And certainly not the type of thing I want to be betting on with a guy having a previous brain hemorrhage. So certainly going with RDA here for the skill set, the 25-minute cardio, the wrestling upside. I just think he has more ways to look like a dominant favorite over the course of 25 minutes and with the minute winning. On top of the fact that just the the physical thing with Luke A uh, certainly scares me. And I think that neutralizes any concerns I'd have regarding the age discrepancy between the two. Billy Ward has the UFC luck ratings right up, available now on the Action Network app, actionnetwork.com. And 
Billy, you're kind of with Zerlo on this, right? I mean, the, the, the price uh, is slightly uh, – it, it identifies that Luque is slightly undervalued despite the fact he's coming off consecutive losses. Yeah, which, which puts me in opposition to Zerlo a little bit here. So a couple things. He has gone 25 minutes. Uh, Luque went 25 minutes with Bilal Muhammad. And what, in a lot of ways, is a stylistically similar matchup. We expect Luque to be the better striker in both of those matchups. We expect him to get taken down a few times. I was really impressed watching that back with how often Luque was able to get back to his feet. And while the actual score ended up not being that close, most of those rounds, there was a pretty compelling case for either guy because Luque does better damage on the feet, gets taken down. And I think every single time he got taken down, except for maybe once, he was able to get back to his feet. It was kind of annoying how he did it because he almost waited till the end of the round where he didn't give himself a lot of time to then score points. But he showed an ability to do that against a much, much larger Bilal Muhammad. I think it'll be a lot easier for him against Dos Anjos. You know, Dos Anjos, former lightweight, not a tiny welterweight by any stretch, but Bilal Muhammad is huge, and Luque was able to get out from under him. I actually think, and people who listen to the podcast have heard me say this before, I don't like guys who have to grapple in 25-minute fights. It is just so much harder to wrestle for 25 minutes than it is to do what Vicente Luque is going to do, which is, you know, try to win the middle of the cage, keep him on his back foot, throw a lot of leg kicks, jab, punch. That kind of thing is just easier to keep up for an extended length of time. So I don't. it's not that I necessarily have issues with Dos Anjos' cardio. I just think the style works out a little better for Vicente Luque over an extended period. And then Sean kind of touched on it, but I prefer to bet Luque against grapplers. While he does have pretty bad takedown defense, he's not really interested in defending takedowns. He kind of just accepts it and works his way back when he's not finding subs. You know, that brain bleed is a concern. I don't like him fighting strikers. I worry about that. But the odds of Dos Anjos hurting him or knocking him out on his feet are pretty small in this one, which makes me a bit more comfortable. So if you can get him at plus money, which it's been bouncing around all week, I like his money line. I think you can find some 105s right now. What I really like, though, is Luque in 4-5 or or by decision, just because I do think if Dos Anjos has to wrestle, has to take him down over and over, I can see Dos Anjos running out of gas here. Or, you know, kind of a close decision where Luque's strikes gets weighed over Dos Anjos' control time. That's all the way up at plus 320. So that's actually my preferred pick here. Also like the money line only at plus money. It's, you know, lined as roughly a pick as it should be. If it were a three-round fight, I'd probably be on the other side. But for the five rounds, I like not having to grapple, and I like the way his style plays out in that situation. Right. Zarello, you care, care to respond? So my apologies. Yeah, Billy's on the opposite side here. Um, care to respond? Yeah, I, I just think we have a sufficient sample of RDA not slowing down while consistently wrestling for 25 minutes. Um, I, I just think he's, you know, as a future Hall of Famer, uh, there's guys who you sort of have to rate differently and look at their careers differently and value them differently as they prep for fights. Um, you know, they, the age concern is is the, a factor here. Like, there's there's a potential on either side that we see a pretty significant physical decline. Uh, our, I mean, RDA won nine months ago, but in his late thirties, getting close to 40, every time he comes back after an eight, nine, eight, nine month layoff, there's just an increased chance that he's going to drop off of a cliff physically. Uh, and the same thing with Luke, you know, getting knocked out after having a previous brain injury, there's a chance that he's just completely shot, you know, going through several wars throughout his career. So yeah, I, I think that's, that's what makes this difficult to handicap. This fight is there's reasons to doubt um, on either side, or there's re- there's reasons to suspect on either side that one of them may not come in in their prime due to you know previous injuries, previous fights, 
and age. So yeah, that that I think makes this fight uh, a bit more difficult to handicap. But grappling upside, proving cardio over 25 minutes, that's why I'm going with RDA. And real quick before we move on, if this was RDA three or four years ago, I totally wouldn't even be considering any of these bets. Part of my handicapping here is projecting in a little bit of a decline for RDA. You never know when that's going to hit, and it tends to kind of hit all at once with these older fighters. It's not as gradual as we might see in other sports, but I am factoring that in to some extent, right? If this is both their guys at their best, it's RDA by a mile. You know, seven, eight years older, not as easy to say. Yep. Okay, we'll dive into the featherweight main event or the featherweight uh, fight of the night that we're going to discuss in just a moment. But first, underdogs and... We have a consensus underdog on the UFC podcast. Zarilla, why don't you tell us who it is and why this makes sense in terms of the value you have? Yeah, I think Billy likes this pick a little bit more than I do, so I'm going to let him expound on it further. There's a couple of underdogs that I like in this card. We're going to talk about them in the next two fights. I don't know if I'm going to stake them both as I normally would, and there's reasons why I'm skeptical for either. So first for Chris Dawkins, moving down from heavyweight to light heavyweight, coming off of three straight knockout losses. I think he's going to be at a big speed disadvantage here. And I don't know if he has a great chin. He also doesn't necessarily have the best cardio. Most of his career wins are in the first five to seven minutes, a lot in the first round. I believe he's 1-0 career by decision. So almost all of his fights end inside the distance, and he has won a decision before. I just think he's going to be at a big speed discrepancy disadvantage against Khalil Roundtree, who's a very good striker, trains out in Thailand with Tiger Muay Thai. Just has the sharper hands. The reach is the same, even though Dawkins is coming down from heavyweight. They have the same reach. Dawkins is a couple inches taller, but in terms of the striking, I think Roundtree is going to be much faster. But where Dawkins probably has an advantage is the grappling. The only problem is he's never attempted a takedown in the UFC, going against the division where he probably had a pretty clear grappling advantage against most of his opponents. Here against Roundtree, I certainly think he has a grappling advantage. He has a BJJ black belt. His brother, typically grapples in his UFC fights and puts that black belt to good use and submits a lot of opponents. I'm curious to see if Dawkins decides to grapple against guys who are more similarly sized to him. So Dawkins on the money line at plus 160, I think is interesting because he does have all of the grappling upside in this fight. Technically too, he is the bigger man, a couple inches taller. I think the size though shouldn't be a big factor, uh, but plus 1400 by submission really caught my eye because if he wins this fight, I think it's likelier to be inside the distance just because of the historics of how, you know, his fights go. Um, but also they, there seems to be as much of a power upside as Roundtree might have on the feet. I think Dawkins has an even more significant submission grappling edge. So if this fight hits the mat, Dawkins at 14 to one by sub is going to look like quite spicy value. So I'll probably sprinkle that or put it in round robins, but I'm considering taking his money line too. Just, you know, the grappling upside of plus money is something we always talk about. I'm just skeptical because he's moving down and wait here for the first time and coming off of three straight KO losses, you know, definitely has me concerned. He just gets clipped and goes out right away. Doc is down to plus 148 on the money line over at FanDuel. And, and Billy, you mapped this out, how he made the, the weight class shift. And that's why, based on some other points, that uh, you do see an edge uh, on the money line here. Yeah, you know, Sean mentioned he's been knocked out three straight times. That was Curtis Blades, Derek Lewis, and Jairzinho Rosenstrike. There's not a lot of humans that could be hit by any of those three and remain (laughs) conscious. So, like, does he have a bad chin? Maybe. This doesn't prove that he has a good chin, but we can give him a pass against those guys, right? Like, everyone gets knocked out by them. The bad news 
that it, they moved him down and then immediately matched him up with a very powerful striker at 205 rather than, you know, a different type of matchup for him, which is rough. But, yeah, I mean, Sean nailed it. He has to grapple here. He's coming off three straight losses. Khalil Roundtree versus, like, just random, randomized UFC 205-er. Is it a huge grappling disadvantage? Mm-hmm. I think part of the reason we didn't see him do it in a lot of his heavyweight fights is because he was consistently giving up 20, 30, in the case of Derek Lewis, maybe up to like 40 or 50 after Lewis rehydrated pounds. It's really hard to take someone down who's 40 pounds heavier than you, 50 pounds heavier than you. I don't know if that was why. You know, part of it is you see these guys pick up a few knockouts like, oh, my hands are the best. I'm going to cash 50 grand performance bonuses, knock everyone out. But then all of a sudden that stops working. He's fighting for his job here. He really needs to prioritize just winning the fight by the easiest method possible. And he just has a super clear path to doing that. Like, Roundtree is not a good grappler. His Muay Thai stance makes him pretty easy to take down. Not great off his back once he gets there. And Roundtree is a former middleweight, so he looks super jacked, but he's not a huge light heavyweight. You know, this is not Iwan Kutalaba or some of these big strong guys. (laughs) It's scary, right? We don't know that he's going to do it. I think every sign points that he needs to and should he's probably smart enough to understand that loved this one earlier in the week it was plus 170 plus 175 still like it at plus 150 i'm also kind of with sean i probably wouldn't go submission i'd probably go inside the distance it you know not as great odds but still juicy if i was going to prop it so yeah we're, we're mostly in agreement i just have a little bit more confidence that he actually does the thing that he very obviously should do but this is you know something we talked about in our experts guide billy and why it could be difficult to bet on MMA sometimes. Sometimes the strength advantage or the the path to victory that you see for a fighter, they don't take. And the fact that Dawkins has never actually, not that he's never landed a takedown, I don't believe he's even attempted a takedown in the UFC. So yeah. he never even tried to get these bigger guys down at heavyweight. That's what has me concerned is we're betting on him to do something that he's never even attempted at the UFC level. It seems fairly obvious that he should do it in this matchup, but you're still banking on something he's never actually done before. And that's what makes betting on this difficult and why I probably wouldn't stake this one as much as I normally would for a typical underdog. bet. And I probably would be with you if I couldn't, if there wasn't like an obvious reason why he didn't do that at heavyweight, Mm -hmm. right? Like he had a speed advantage at heavyweight. His hands were so much faster than everyone. And it's harder to take down guys who are way bigger than you. So like if he were staying in a weight class and we still saw that advantage, I'd probably be a little bit more cautious it just feels so obvious. And I know like that doesn't mean he does it, but it just feels so obvious. And that's the kind of thing that if we're going to do it, we're going to do it when it's plus money, right? Like if he was minus 150 here, say, no way, I'm not laying the juice yeah. on a guy to do something he's never done, but it's worth a shot here. And honestly, even if he doesn't, I don't think it's a huge disadvantage striking. He's got fast hands. He's got good power. Mm-hmm. Like he could mess around and win a striking exchange too. Sure. I hope he doesn't. I hope he doesn't even try. I hope we don't know if he could do that, but it's not the craziest outcome either. Whereas yeah, the striking will be much more competitive than the grappling. And that's, again, another reason why we're playing Dawkins at plus money. Also, like, just fight like a brother. And we don't, I mean, who's to say this isn't actually his brother coming up a weight class rather than uh, the big <laughs> one cutting down? It could be either of them for all we know. Fair point, yep. All right, good stuff. Good featherweight matchup that we're going to discuss. Our fight of the night featuring, I, I had to read this one a few times. I thought Dansby Swanson of the Chicago Cubs. It's Cub Swanson, which is, that's kind of, you know, Zarello baseball guy. Billy, you too. Um, it's just kind of a neat little thing. But Cub Swanson is the underdog taking on Hakeem Doadu. He's at minus 245 uh, over at FanDuel. Now down to minus 235 at FanDuel. Swanson at plus 186. Um, Swanson's older, 39 years old. 
uh, Zarello. I'm not sure how much age factors in here uh, as it pertains to this particular fight. Their strike accuracy is very similar. Uh, how do you pick this one apart and land on a best bet for this fight? Yeah, I think age is a huge factor here because prime for prime, I'm taking Cub every time. And I don't think you're getting close to plus 195. He might be minus 200 in his prime against Hakeem Dawadu. Um, Hakeem is the bigger guy. Cub used to fight at 135. He's come up to 145. He seems a little bit small for the division and also doesn't seem to have the power that his opponents have. He got absolutely carved up by Jonathan Martinez in his last fight. And as he's getting older, it seems like he can't take the damage as well to the legs, to the body. Just seems like he's much more able to get out of there, uh, where he used to be one of the most durable fighters in the UFC. Has been through a number of wars, so I think the power advantage, the durability advantage, does lean to mean Hakeem Dawadu. But at the same time, Dawadu is not a particularly durable guy either. He seems to get wobbled or knocked down in all of his fights, and I don't view him as a particularly big power puncher or a particularly great fighter. He's a good striker, but I think Cub might have the grappling advantage here. So there are ways for Cub to keep this fight competitive, to keep it close, if he does not get knocked out. I think that is the biggest concern here is the age, his ability to take damage against the guy who is bigger, three-inch reach advantage, and more of a natural 145er, where Cub is probably a natural 135er. So he's at a size discrepancy facing a younger man who hits harder. Don't like any of those things, but skill for skill, Cub is the more technical man. He's the better fighter. So again, another small underdog bet because of the age factor, because of the durability factor. Based on where I projected this compared to where the market has this, I'll tell you, like, Cub is a very popular fighter. And when I run the numbers for these fights, the popular fighters tend to get more support, more of that underdog support, um, or, you know, just more public support than you would anticipate based on the betting line. That's not the case in this fight. Um, Cub is actually being very heavily picked against here. So I think the market has already factored in, you know, all of the age factor, et cetera, into the line. I think there is value on Cub at around plus 200. We'd probably bet it small down to about plus 175, but not much further. And again, not more than about a quarter unit bet. Uh, just want to have a little bit of action on him here as the more skilled guy, but the age, et cetera, you know, has me concerned. Billy, where do you land on this one between Swanson and Dawadu? Yeah, I like Sean's angle. I, I think... Personally, I'm going to go with the decision no bet line on Cub Swanson, which means if a decision for either fighter happens, you get your bet refunded. I was just kind of surprised the way this one was priced. Dawudo has decisions in five of his six UFC wins. Three of those are split decision wins. So first of all, we got like the luck rating factor going against him pretty heavily here because winning mm-hmm. three splits, going three and oh in splits is, you know, pretty stark. And then also, I just don't know how these markets are seeing Dawudo is the more likely finisher here because he hasn't done it. Cub, despite fighting in smaller weight classes, finished roughly half of his UFC wins. Also a BJJ black belt, pretty good submissions. A little bit of grappling upside. He gets about one per 15 minutes, where Dawudo, pure Muay Thai, never even attempted one. And then I think that durability piece that Sean mentioned, I'm not confident in this, but it could be a little bit better without having that extra weight cut, being able to you know eat a little bit better, have a couple more pounds of muscle on him. I'm hoping that helps him stay a little bit more durable here. I think the likeliest outcome is probably a Dawudo decision where he just kind of wins the striking exchanges, but nothing super substantive happens. But if there's a finish, I think it's likelier to be Dawudo. So getting that at plus 235 or so, really like that. And, you know, I'm comfortable betting that a little bit bigger because there's a good chance it gets refunded anyway. All right, on to the prop market, and then we'll go to best bets before we wrap things up. Uh, What jumps out to us this week, Cirillo, from a, a prop standpoint? 
Going to take Josh Fremd inside the distance at minus 135. Big juicy money line price. So getting his inside the distance at a discount. Projected him to win by a finish closer to 75 or 80% of the time. The betting market telling you that it's closer to 60 or 65%. In a matchup here with Jamie Pickett, two grapplers, grappling-oriented fighters. Tough to describe Pickett as a fighter, really, because it seems like his best skill is controlling opponents up against the fence. But because of that stylistic matchup, I do expect Frem to have opportunities to land takedowns here. And once he gets on top of Pickett, I think he's either going to finish him with ground and pound or get him to roll onto his belly and finish him via rear naked choke. So Josh Frem inside the distance, not necessarily on skill or a huge power edge, but more so on aggression and tenacity. He's just a guy who's not going to stop coming forward until he sees his hand raise. So Frem inside the distance at a big juicy minus 135, but a big discount compared to his money line. Billy, in the prop market, you've also identified an inside-the-distance prop, but a different fighter. Who might that be? Yeah, I'm looking at Martin Budai, and honestly, just kind of swap out what Zarilla said about uh, Fremd and Pickett for Budai and his opponent, Josh Parisian. Not really sure what Parisian's all that good at. Like, in theory, he's got some grappling <laughs> upside, but it doesn't really tend to work out. He has two wins in the UFC. One is a split decision over a guy who's since been cut, and then one is a ground-and-pound over, like, probably one of the worst heavyweights we've seen in modern UFC history in Alan Boudot. And Boudai has gone to decision in all of his UFC wins, but he finished eight out of nine before that. So really, anytime we can get a fairly heavily favored heavyweight at decent plus money, plus 175, that, that feels like the way to play it just because we know the finish rate for heavyweights is so much higher. It is the small cage. There's nowhere to run and hide. I just don't I think he finds a way to finish Parisian. I'm not confident that it's necessarily on the feet or on the ground or by submission, but we take a minus 200 favorite, flip him to a plus 175 underdog, and get what I think is his likeliest win condition. So not a hugely confident pick because I don't think Budai is the best heavyweight ever either, but should be a lot better than Parisian tomorrow. Okay, and before we go, let's do best bets for UFC Vegas 78. Sean Zarillo. Where are we looking this week for a, a final bet or a best bet? Yeah, my favorite bet. Going to take Yasmin Lucendo here at around minus 200. That's about where I'd better up to. Got her closer to minus 185. She had a really fun debut in her USA debut against Yasmin Jaragui, who many people think will be an eventual UFC champion, even though she subsequently was knocked out in her last fight. But a really fun striking matchup between those two on a UFC pay-per-view when they were two relative unknowns. And a really good follow-up fight from Lucindo in her last matchup against Brogan Walker. Landed multiple takedowns in in that fight. Showed that she can grapple in addition to strike as she did in her debut. And I just view her as the more well-rounded fighter than Pollyanna Viana. Viana can strike with her. I think she can hang on the feet. But where it's really going to run into problems is her takedown defense. 50% for her career. Willing to accept takedowns. Not as much as just getting taken down and unable to defend them. I think she's fine being put on her back because she has a good submission game off of her back. And I think she's fine playing guard, trying to hunt from submissions off of her back and potentially finish opponents. But in terms of optics for the judges, that is the worst thing you want to see is your fighter getting taken down, laying on their back and trying to hunt for submissions. Worst possible optics for the judges. And it seems to happen to Viana multiple times in each of her fights. She averages over two an hour, nearly two and a half submissions per 15 minutes but she's getting less than one takedown per 15 minutes. So that tells you most of those submission attempts are coming when she's on her back, not when she's on top. 
Uh, so the power advantage on the feet for Lucindo, the durability advantage on the feet for Lucindo, in addition to the fact that I think she's going to land takedowns and spend the majority of this fight or a good portion of this fight in top position and controlling her opponent. I like Viana here closer to minus 200, or I should say I like Lucindo here closer to minus 200. I think Viana needs a finish to win this fight. And Billy, your best bet is also featured in your luck ratings. Uh, women's straw weight. Why is there an edge on the underdog here? Yeah, I'm hoping nobody from my BJJ gym is listening to this podcast because I'm going to engage in some Brazilian jiu-jitsu slander here for a minute. Uh, Jacqueline Amorim is a pretty heavy favorite here. She is world-class jiu-jitsu, has competed at a super high level. Don't love how that translates to her for MMA. Like Sean was talking about in his last pick, loves to play off her back, happy to do that. She also tends to gas out, at least from what we've seen so far, if she doesn't get the submission almost immediately, which is something we see. Most Brazilian jiu-jitsu competitions, you only do one round at a time. That's a little bit harder to translate over to MMA, which you're pushing a higher pace. You have to get on the stool, get back up, do it again and again. She's fighting Montserrat Conejo, or Montserrat Ruiz. I don't know which last name we're going with this time. And Ruiz is like plus 205. She is a really high-level wrestler. She was on the Mexican national team, competed in that stuff. In her debut, she just stuck like the most simple head throw three straight times, landed it, got a scarfold or Kesagatami, and held that position for three rounds. I like her desire to be on top. I like her willingness to you know push for wrestling and stuff like that. I think it's going to be a sketchy first round between these two with the Morim very likely to lock up a submission. But if it doesn't happen, it should be all Ruiz from there. Both of them have very, very bad striking, at least technically for MMA. But I think Ruiz has better power, a little bit more aggressive. So if it's one of those where we see, you know, someone's got better submission skills, but if she can't get it to the ground and Ruiz wants to keep it standing, I'd make her a slight favorite in those exchanges, even though I expect this to play out on the ground. So plus 205. Fine with laying that juice. Probably about a half unit for me here. I could also see, you know, taking some late props on her too because I think it'll be a scary opening segment. Live live options there on Ruiz as well if Amorim can't get a quick submission in the first round. Okay, and that's a line you might want to grab sooner rather than later, as you noted, because that price has come down on Ruiz over at FanDuel. That's going to do it for our UFC Vegas 78 betting preview here on the Action Network podcast. Be sure to find Zarillo and Billy Ward in the Action app should they add anything else before the weekend commences. I'm your host, Brendan Glasheen. Thanks for listening to the Action Network podcast presented by FanDuel. Action Network reminds you, please gamble responsibly. If you or someone you care about has a gambling problem, help is available 24-7 at 1-800-GAMBLER.